and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. During the daytime, I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach, where I do a lot of one-on-one coaching with C-suite executives and also professional athletes and collegiate athletes. Really fortunate to do the work that I do. I also do a fair amount of public speaking and keynotes and lead workshops on what we call strong skills. And really, my company is on a mission to transform how we think about quote unquote soft skills. And we want to try to get the world to start thinking about those skills as strong skills because after all, empathy, leadership, communication, teamwork, these are the skills that help make us strong. So head on over to strongskills.co and you can learn more about the work that I do and my team does. You'll also see over there my new book, which is called Shift Your Mind. It came out in October. It's available via Audible if you want to listen to the book or at Amazon if you want to read the hard copy. If you like these types of conversations and are as obsessed with mindset as I am, I highly encourage you check out the book. Now to today's guest. I first found out about Lauren Johnson from social media. She's really active on Twitter and LinkedIn, and she puts out these one-minute videos that are extremely actionable, they're simple, and they're really thought-provoking. And she was challenging me and pushing me, and I was learning from her on social. So I reached out, we had a few calls, and I was blown away by her perspective on the mental side of performance. And like me, Lauren works as a mental performance coach. She's a keynote speaker, she's a writer, she's an entrepreneur, and in similar fashion to me, she's obsessed and curious and interested with how those lessons in sports translate to the corporate world. So she's given keynotes to the FBI, Johnson & Johnson, Mass Mutual, and Square, and she's been fortunate to work for the New York Yankees as their mental conditioning coordinator, which she recently left, and she'll talk about the experience that she had with the Yankees and what it's been like working with some of the best athletes in the world, and then also how she thinks about her own performance when she's putting the, together those videos or she's doing a keynote. She's going to share her perspective on how she approaches all of it and how she sets her mind and thinks about the mental models that are needed to be elite both in business and in sport. 
So I know you're going to love this conversation with Lauren. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Lauren Johnson. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Man, oh man, I'm excited. I'm jazzed to chat with you. You have put out, look, there are a lot of people that use social media as a megaphone to share information. There are a few that use it as a megaphone to share valuable information. And you are one of those few that I just really enjoy following, uh, especially on Twitter. I think that's probably where I follow you the most. I think on LinkedIn, you're on there as well. Um, but uh, have watched you from afar. And then I, I think, I don't know how we got connected. If I just reached out to you and said, Hey, I think someone, Oh, Jake, Jake, Jake Jake. connected us. Mm -hmm. So thank God for Jake Thompson. Who's, who's just an amazing guy. I love Jake, but he connected us. I was like, thank you, Jake. Um, And since then we've had some really amazing conversations about all things, mindset uh, performance related. So this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to getting to know you better and see where it goes. And look, I know you were an athlete growing up. I know it's a big part of your identity. So just give us an idea of how sports played a role in your childhood and, and what that was like for you as a kid. Oh man. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind compliments about content, man. When I first started putting out content, I was like so nervous, pretty insecure to be honest with you. And over time and with consistency, I've had some some really great people in my corner that have just encouraged me that, uh, you know, it's starting to get to where I'm pretty happy with it. So I just thank you. It means so much coming from somebody like you. Um, Hey Lauren, can we, can we actually start there instead? So taking the leap to start putting out video content, walk us through that decision. And you said you're, you're sort of insecure, which if someone followed you, they wouldn't guess that. So take us there maybe, and we can, we'll, we'll talk about sports, but I'd actually rather go there. I think that's, that's more interesting. Uh, Perfect. Well, I I think that, you know, when you start anything new, it's pretty natural to be a little insecure, a little, a little hesitant. And uh, it's easy to second guess yourself, you know, is my stuff good? Is it not? And um, I had put out videos sporadically prior to that, prior to like this past year. But once the pandemic kind of hit and we were sent home from spring training, that's when I had more time on my hands. I was like, you know what, let's, let's go for it. So I was originally had the goal of just doing a 10 video series and see how it went. Well, it went a lot better than I had expected. And um, so I decided to continue. I was like, I can't stop this. I'm getting so much good feedback um, from it. But to be honest with you, I think that there's one thing to know if you start anything new that I've learned is number one, you're not gonna be good at it (laughs) when you first start. You're probably gonna suck to be totally frank and honest. And number two, the only way to get better is to keep doing that thing. It's rinse and repeat, try it, learn from it, receive feedback, adjust, try again. And every single time I would try again, now granted, sometimes we're successful, some weren't, but every single time successful or not, I learned. And I think a lot of times we hear the phrase, you know, you either win or you learn. Well, I think that's crap because win or lose, you should be learning. Cause if we're only learning when we're losing, then we're leaving half of the great information and, and feedback on the table. And so for me, it was just a constant learning process and being committed to the process, to showing up every single Wednesday, showing up and making sure that I'm developing this content um, and getting it out there, putting myself out there. And so I think it was just more so the more repetitions, the more consistency and the more I, the more reps that I put in, the better that it became and the more confidence I got from it. Did you receive any negative feedback from the videos early on? 
Um, yeah, I did. Definitely. I was told like, you, you're speaking like a robot and I'm like, I know I'm aware of that and I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I was told so many different things that like, you know, talk, talk beyond the camera, like somebody who's sitting right there, but that was so hard for me. Um, it was just, it was not, it was not very easy. I'll be totally honest with you. I have so much respect for people that do this every day. I have a really good friend, AJ McCord, and she is a, um, she's a, um, a, a reporter for a, a news uh, station up in Oregon. And she does this every single day. And I got to watch her report about uh, the Portland trailblazers. And I got to watch her live do it. And I was just completely like impressed. I was like, how the hell do you do that? Like just on the spot. And, uh, I just, I just have a lot of respect for people like that, but it was not easy for me. Um, and any search in the man imagination, it still isn't easy for me. Some parts are easier than they first were, but I think every time I do one, I try and level up. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. Why did you stay with it? I think because if you want to be good at anything, you can't turn around at the first sign of adversity. <laughs> and I knew that I think going into my soccer days and talking about sports, like I grew up playing soccer from the age of five, played all the way through college. And just because something didn't work out in my favor, it didn't mean that you stopped. It actually meant the very opposite. It meant that it needed more work. It needed more attention. And so for me, I realized that when I wasn't getting the best feedback, I knew that it wasn't because I wasn't, I just wasn't ever going to be good at it. It was because I didn't have the practice alongside it to be good at it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like somebody that starts something brand new. You, you know, professionals, they're just amateurs that have tried, failed, learned, and improved more than anybody else. And so I knew that I had just gone through that process way less than people that are brilliant at this. And that it's something that you can, it's a skill that you can grow and develop, but you're not going to grow and develop much if you just turn around when it gets difficult. It's very growth mindset mixed with some grit from Angela Duckworth. But I think one of the things that's interesting for me with where I'm at in my life is I've got a five-year-old boy and he loves to learn, loves to learn. But if you've ever been around a five-year-old boy, they often don't love to lose. And look, I don't know too many people that are adults that love to lose. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting because we just introduced checkers to him this past weekend. And he just wants to learn and wants to compete and wants to grow and, and get better at it. And foosball, we got him a foosball table for his birthday. In the beginning, he just got his ass kicked by his dad, like just getting <laughs> crushed. And he kept working on it, kept like I... I wouldn't even be home and he'd be working on his moves on foosball table and hitting it. And he beat me. The five-year-old beat me in foosball the other day along the way though. And I think about this as a parent, it was important for me to, to compete with him and then to talk to him about, Hey, what could you do better? How could you do it differently? And then to show him because modeling is important for kids that age. So with checkers, I'm really trying to show him how to play and and then there was another piece where he would get really upset when he would lose and he'd start crying. And I was like, you know, when we lose, we need to learn and we need to also shake our opponent's hand. And so I, now he'll often, he loses, he takes a breath. He looks at me, he comes over to the other side of the table and he shakes my hand. And then he goes, can we go again? And there was one night where he said, he did that. I beat him three times. And the last, he goes, 
the first time he lost, he's like, dad, can we go again? I'm like, sure. He's like, yeah, we can go again because I didn't start crying and losing it. I'm like, yeah, we can go again if you do that. So as I'm hearing you talk, I think these are also life skills that go beyond a pro athlete. It's, it's yeah. the willingness to put ourselves out there, make ourselves vulnerable, learn from the good stuff, learn from the negative stuff and grow and develop. And from that space, that's where we, we end up gaining our own competence and know how to actually compete going forward. So, um, Thanks for sharing. You know, I, I agree. I just think when you learn how to fail, like the world opens up for you. Like when you learn how to deal with and respond to failing, like so many opportunities, you just start, you start to see the opportunity and the struggle. And I think that's what some of the most elite minded people are able to do is that it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it doesn't suck. It doesn't mean that they, they don't still don't fear it, but they know how to respond to it when they're faced with it. And so I just think that that's like such an incredible skill that if you can really hone that in, meaning you're willing to look at it and you're willing to look at it, remove your emotions and look at it. Okay. Factually, what happened and what can I do different? And how am I going to do that? And then start working towards that. I think when you can learn how to do that and respond in that way, that just so many great, incredible things um, open up and you start to appreciate your losses, not just seek your, your wins and those successes. And I love what you said earlier. It's not win and learn. It's whether you win or lose, you both learn. Was yeah. there a video that was a win when you watched it? You said, gosh, I, I didn't even know I had that in me. And perhaps it got the responses to back that up or maybe not. I mean, I don't think it necessarily matters if it did or it didn't on that front, but was there a time where you, it clicked for you from winning? And then what did you learn from that winning experience when it came to producing content? And we're going to go into a bunch of other places, but I think this is just an interesting place to start. Yeah. Um, actually one of my earliest videos, like is still one of the most successful ones I've ever put out. And it was about finding the good and the bad. And I kind of shared some of my own um, situations, obstacles, adversities, failures, and I showed the flip side of them. And yes, this happened, but this is what I learned from it. This happened, but I also gained this from that. And the point of it was that, that I, I could look back and I could tell you all the bad things that happened because certainly there, there were bad things and there were negative things and things that really hurt me and how I suffered. But that's a choice that we make. And I could also talk about all the good things that came from it. And so I think finding the good and the bad has to do with the fact that we have a choice and you're choosing which one to give power to. Um, and so I think that one was like one of probably one of the most successful ones. And I've had, I've had some others since then. Um, but I think one of the biggest things I took away was that it made the listener think it made them reflect. And I think that's what makes a really good, uh, a good video is when you're able to impact somebody in a way that makes them look at themselves and think, how can this apply to me? And how can I implement this in my own life? And so that's what I kind of started to do was, okay, I, I'm giving this information, but I want people to be, to look at it and go, oh, I didn't think of it that way. How can I apply this now to myself? And so it was almost making the listener think. Instead of just giving information, it was making them um, evaluate their own lives and how it could apply to themselves. That's really good. I, look, I've done over 200 of these conversations. And when I know I'm having a good conversation, it's when I ask a question and I see someone's eyes go up a little bit and they pause. And a lot of times they'll say, that's a really good question because they're trying to create some time and space before they give their answer. That's when I know I've asked them a question that they haven't 
already created a story or a narrative or an answer to. And that's often where the best answers live because they're true. They're in real time. I'm pulling out the people that I'm so fortunate to get get to interview their genius because it's not pre-programmed. And I now you've got me thinking about how can I do that when I'm speaking or in other avenues and other um, areas, because I've often thought that the power of question is when you ask a question that you genuinely don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. You're almost doing the same thing in how you're thinking about providing content. You're, you're providing them with something that they're now having to ask a question that they haven't, they don't have the answer to yet. And now they're actually creating their own answer, which that's, uh, that's fascinating. And I also find that it's the simple shifts it's not these big ideas that are going to just overturn your life. It's these really small, simple shifts that are easy to adopt and therefore easy to commit to long-term that create these big changes over time. But it's kind of one of those things where it's so simple. It's not only easy to do, but it's also easy not to do. So it's, um, that that's kind of one of the other pieces I think I found is that it doesn't have to be this huge shift. It doesn't have to like, you know, you don't have to add throw all this information that you've ever heard about it. But if you just take one little thing that's super easy to apply, especially in the moment, most people are going to try and apply it where when it's like, okay, well, you got to grab a sheet of paper and you got to ask, answer these six questions and then turn around twice, do two somersaults. And then you're going to be a different person. People are like, no, thanks. <laughs> so something really simple. And that's, that's what it is, right? A lot of times when it comes to mindset, they're not these huge overturns. There are these really small shifts over time that make big impacts. There's a cool graphic that suggests easy to do, high on impact. And I think that's what you're hitting at is what's easy to do, but high on impact. And I think that's that's really valuable. You mentioned that your most successful or one of your most popular videos is talking about choosing to see the good and, and maybe bad. And here we are, Lauren, pandemic, political unrest, social unrest, I don't know about you and I don't know how old you are, but for me in my lifetime, like I lived through September 11th, I've lived through some dark days in our society. Boy, oh boy, 2020 into 2021, there has been plenty of bad. How are you doing? How are you choosing to see the good during this time? Uh, Take us into how your perspective and how you're thinking about handling what our country has been going through over the last year. Well, I think whenever things happen, especially I think, you know, like you said lately with some, you know, political unrest and um, in the pandemic is that um, it, it, I'm human. I think a lot of people, they're like, well, you can't say that you're a mental coach. I'm like, yeah, but I'm also a human. And I think what makes people good at their jobs is the fact that they're realistic, not perfect. And I like to, I like to exist in reality. I, I'm never going to tell somebody like, Oh, just don't feel that because I just think it's BS for me. I was really upset when some things went down in our country, it really impacted me. And however, there's this one principle that I always go back to when I'm feeling out of control. And I think probably a lot of us right now are feeling a little bit out of control. And that's when I go back to focusing on what it is I can. And one of the things that we can control are the things that we choose to focus on in our perspective. And so while there is so so much bad happening in the world, 
there's also a lot of good if we're willing to look for it. It's kind of like, you know, when you're, when you're looking for negative, you're, you're going to find negative. When you're looking for good, you can find good and you can attract those things. And so for me, I, I remember I was actually sitting with my husband at dinner and it was after, you know, our, uh, our capital was, um, was breached. And I sat there and I was really upset by everything. I think the whole country was no matter what side or political view that you have. And I finally looked at him and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go over the three things that I'm super grateful for right now. And I just did. And I think one of the things that happens is like great gratitude and anger cannot exist simultaneously. So I think for me, I was really angry. I was frustrated. I was confused. And when I moved to what I was grateful for, it actually like kind of took some weight off of my shoulders. And so I think right now, number one, choosing what you consume is so important and valuable. Um, and so I, I made sure to, I, I audit what I consume. Number one, number two, I try to focus on the good things and I try to focus on the things within my control. Like I said, one of the first things to go when we're feeling out, when we're feeling overwhelmed is our sense of control. And so if you're somebody that's feeling that way, just grab a sheet of paper, either fold it in half, divide it, draw a circle. And on one side or in that circle, write all the things that you can control. And then on the outside of that, write all the things that you can't control. This sounds so simple. And a lot of people are like, oh my God, everybody's saying that. Yeah, but it's because it's true and it works and it's simple. And it's not just thinking through it, but it's writing it down. Because when you can, the act of writing it and seeing it, getting more clear on it, makes it easier for us to focus on it. And so let that serve kind of as your visual reminder of what you can and cannot control right now, because our default setting is going to go towards anything that could be a threat to you, which a lot of things of of that nature right now are out of our control. And so for me, those are kind of the two things that I go to is number one, what am I really grateful for right now? What is the good I can find amidst all the bad? Because to me, that's all about what we're choosing to focus on. And then number two, what can I control? And for every individual, that's going to look a little bit different. So I love, I love where we're at. I love where we're at because this is real and this is where I'm at. So number one, control what you can control. I first learned about that in grad school. Like I hadn't heard that. And sometimes we assume that everybody's heard that phrase. A lot of 16, 18, 22, 26 year olds, 46 year olds actually haven't. And so don't take it for granted. Uh, My brothers for my birthday one year, I play golf and they got me a towel that says control what you can control. And believe me and anyone that's played golf before knows that you need a reminder when you're on the golf course to do that. So I appreciate that. Here's where I'm at though, because this is interesting. George Floyd happened. I was angry. I was sad. I Show me someone who watches that video and isn't angry and sad. It's probably not someone I want to have a relationship with, right? Like that's just the reality, regardless of what you think politically, you can't watch that video and not feel sadness and anger in my mind. I actually used the sadness and anger and started taking action. And I use those feelings and, you know, I we're fortunate when you work in sports it's very hard to live in a racial bubble. There are sports is one of the few as it's not a meritocracy, but it's pretty damn close because if you can play ball, you're going to probably get an opportunity regardless of what you look like. Uh, Cause they care about winning that much. Like, let's be honest. They're not going to, they're not going to have any of the bullshit racism or, or stuff that the rest of our society might be able to get away with because winning matters. So they're, 
going to put aside maybe whatever their own stuff is. They still have issues. They still have challenges just like everything else. My point in saying that was I'm connected to a lot of people of color because I work in sports and I'm fortunate to have that diversity in my life. So my action involved conversations with them. And actually from that has been birthed an idea and a concept that I'm currently pursuing and, and trying to make a reality. And so I give that example because I do think it's important that people realize that your feelings and thoughts are not in your control, but they are giving you data and information. And to have a, a system, I almost think of it as a Brita, like a water Brita. Like how do you filter those thoughts and feelings to get to the good stuff? And then, yeah, like if I didn't have that sadness and anger, maybe I wouldn't have chosen to step into this thing that I'm really excited to pursue to try to make the world a little bit better place. So I think it's important that people realize that sadness and anger aren't necessarily bad either. And that feeling those emotions and feeling those feelings are important. And I still can be grateful, right? Like I'm grateful that I have those relationships where I could have conversations with people. I'm grateful that I live in a country that allows us to have freedom of speech and allows us to challenge when we see things that are wrong. And I'll just bring it back to the US Capitol because I'll tell you, I, for me, once I was able to take some action on how I was feeling with George Floyd, there are still so many of the things that are out of my control, but at least I felt like I did have some control into how I was showing up to handle that thing. We'll tell you with the Capitol, with George Floyd, I felt like, Brian, you're not doing enough, man. You need to do more. You have a lot of privileges that go beyond your skin color that you could do more for George Floyd. When the U.S. Capitol hit, I'm based outside Washington, D.C. Last year, I was in the U.S. Capitol. I saw how secure it was. I, I witnessed it. Um, and I am a Washingtonian, and I am proud to be from this city. My parents are from this city. I will tell you, I felt like I, there, I started going to, what can I do? And one of the things I chose to do intentionally was to go to Twitter. And I did think it was important that I shared some of my thoughts on that platform. And it was intentional and it wasn't thoughtless, but it was also, I, it was real. Like I, I, I have some real issues. And, and the last thing I'll say, cause I know I'm on a ramp, but this stuff is, is, is really fresh for me. I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor who lost two brothers in the Holocaust, murdered, family was separated. And I had on a woman on the podcast, Megan Phelps Roper, who was part of the Westboro, Westboro Baptist Church in the U.S., Topeka, Kansas. They are an extremist group. And Megan left there and now has an amazing TED Talk. And she talks about empathy. And Megan is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met and had the pleasure of speaking to. And Megan, I asked her, when do we have too much empathy? Because for a long time, I believed, no, just stay grateful stay empathetic, like stay in that space. And she said, when someone threatens violence to others, to themselves, um, you know, in those moments, that's where you need to step in. And I thought about what was going on in the Capitol. I'm like, those people right now, it's not about empathy. Like this is, I, I like right now you need to, to stop it. And, um, you know, I wasn't planning to go into all that with you, but I think it is important as a reminder because if we don't feel the sadness or feel the anger, it might be too late. And in the Holocaust, over 6 million people did not need to die. The world was too empathetic to Hitler. They just were. And they didn't, 
if they had more anger and rage and sadness, it would have been stopped a lot sooner. And so um, I know I'm on a rant right now. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on what I'm talking about. Well, I think that you bring up something really important that our, our thoughts and feelings, I actually wrote this on Twitter like a couple of days ago, that our thoughts are not facts and neither are our feelings. Actually, Justin Sua jumped in. He goes, your feelings aren't either. I'm like, yes. And he actually said something that I loved. And he said, it's, it's a signal. They are signals. They are not facts. And so I think that knowing, like being able to filter, like you said, kind of that Brita being able to filter through, you know, how you're feeling and your thoughts, and then in being intentional with which ones you're choosing to act upon, which ones you're choosing to focus on, it's how you're wanting to proceed as a result of that is super important because, um, because if we just acted on every feeling or every thought that we had, um, it wouldn't look very good, would it? But, and it wouldn't be good for us or others. And I think that's one thing we can really take away. And the other thing is that we can't control other people. We can control us and our influence and our impact. And so I think that's really important because it's, it can be so frustrating you know, seeing how other people respond, how other people act, whether they're right, whether they're wrong. And either way, knowing that we have no control over them, but we still have control of ourselves. And that that's the important piece is being able to filter through those feelings, those thoughts, those emotions, and being intentional on what we're choosing to do as a result and the actions we're choosing in response to that. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I love it. It's it's tricky because even after it happened, I know some of the people in my world, some of the people I've had on this podcast, um, we're going to have different views of that capital experience than I did. And I went on Instagram and I'm watching their perspectives and, you know, what do we intake? Like, what do we decide to look toward? Cause right now we're at a point in society where it's, do we, shut it off because it just causes us to maybe feel more anger? Do we lean into it so we understand their perspective? It, and we're, we're, we're all sort of trying to figure out how much of an echo chamber do we want to live in? Because I do think it's really valuable to not just be in an echo chamber. And it's valuable to, to filter some content that might not be useful to our health. And I'm struggling with that. Like how much do I continue to lead with empathy, which is something I value tremendously. And then how much do I say, you know what? I, I really don't think that that's helping me or the situation or, or, or thoughts. So how do you lean into empathy? And, and then when, when do you sort of say, you know what, I'm going to choose a different input um, to watch. Well, you just said a word that I was actually going to dive into, which is this idea of input and output. And I think that's so important when you're talking about these things, because it is one thing to have empathy is one thing to try and understand. And that's definitely um, probably my biggest strength and biggest weakness sometimes is, uh, is empathy. Um, however, if the output is not serving you, then you've got to change your input. You've got to manage that input. And so I think that it's a constant, um, it's not, there's, I don't think there's any clear answer. And I think for every person, it's going to be slightly different, but I would say that we have to evaluate sometimes our outputs and then be using that as a signal as when we should change or adjust or adapt our inputs. Because, um, because if we're watching something that constantly make it, makes us angry and we're showing up differently, you know, at home, we're showing up diff differently to people with different opinions, we're showing up differently in other ways that aren't serving us and we don't like, then that's not good either. Right. right. That's no. really 
That's really good. And I want to thank you. I'll, I'll put a check in the mail for the last 30 minutes as, as you have, <laughs> think about this. Yeah, right. You've done plenty for me. I should send it, be sending it to you. <laughs> oh, because it's real. Uh, and, and I think there's, you said something earlier where like realistic is more powerful than being perfectionistic because the reality is coaches need coaching too. And, um, you know, my clients, the, the day after what happened in the Capitol, you know, I started with it. I'm like, let's have a conversation. What's going on right now? Like it's relevant. And one of them said, Brian, do you need me to coach you right now? I'm like, look, I know how to, I know I'm bringing this up. Cause I think it's, it's real. Like you can't ignore it. Um, and then my job is to then say, all right, what's, how can I serve you? And so we started there and then I shifted out of that and did my job. And, um, but, but it, it is, it's real. It's, this is, this is real big boy, big girl stuff right now. And if you're ignoring what's going on and just sweeping it under the rug, I don't think that's healthy either. Like we, we have to address real societal humanistic issues. And so thank you for going there with me. And uh, hopefully the listeners are, are getting value out of this too, because I'm no different than you listening. Like these are real things that I struggle with and um, I'm still trying to make sense of. And for me, that input and output and the awareness, right? Being aware of, hey, am I learning right now? Am I growing or am I just getting more defensive, more angry. And, and honestly, I'm the only one that can really answer that for myself. And I need to, I need to check myself on that in that regard. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think we all can, and, and it doesn't just serve us in the situations that's happening now, but it serves us in all aspects of life. Right. It's, it's this idea that, uh, that we can't control all of our circumstances. And sometimes we're going to be faced with things that are really difficult to handle. And, the, I think a lot of times we go to this idea of we want to avoid it. We want to avoid discomfort. We want to avoid uh, hard conversations. We want to avoid what's happening in the world because it's easier to avoid than to face it. But instead of avoiding it, it's choosing our response to it because like the best performers and no matter what domain that you're in, they're not known for changing their circumstances and randomly just like, poof, it's all better. Uh, you know, we're living in this kind of rainbow and unicorn world it's they're known for being able to show up and respond re effectively regardless of the circumstance. So I think that it's more so training our response to, to difficult. It's training our responses to um, unforeseen circumstances and uh, difficult scenarios, obstacles, adversities that we may face and being able to choose those things. Sometimes one of the things, one of the things that I do sometimes in terms of choosing my response when I don't know it right away is I create space. I create space between the circumstance or the situation and my response so that it gives me time to really think through because often my initial response might be emotional. It might be reactive and it might not serve me well. So sometimes when I do get an emotional response or I do get, I notice myself getting defensive or frustrated, what I'll do is I'll actually create space to give myself time before I have to respond and then of course you can shorten that as you get better at it in between, but that's one way. And, and one thing that I do in terms of training my response. That's so good. And I, I put on my notes here as the, with the George Floyd stuff, I was talking to some people and we were talking about reflecting the mass. Like you mentioned discomfort, go reflect in the mass. Like let's reflect on how you're feeling, what's going on for you, what's going on for our country. Let's reflect in the mass. And when I hear you say I create space, like if you have a space of reflection, maybe it's non-judgmental, it's just sitting with it and you reflect in it, then that can actually birth a better response in the future. 
Um, and, and so for me, I love where you went because if you don't give yourself space to reflect in the mess, then it's not going to be responsive. It's going to be reactive. And so the space and, and creating space to reflect in the mess allows us to grow, develop. And then maybe the next time we don't have to be as reflective, we could be responsive or we might need to go back to reflecting in the mess again. Um, all right. We could continue to ping pong back and forth and it would be lots of fun. But I'm, I'm aware that also the listeners may not be aware of who you are, how you got here uh, and all that good stuff. So you mentioned playing soccer as a kid and, and soccer being a big part of how you learned and how you grew. Tell me about your soccer experience. I know you played in college and then that experience didn't go exactly as planned. Um, so talk about soccer and the influence it had on you. And I'd love for you to take us up to uh, working as a mental performance coach and just give us an idea of why you decided to go down this path. I think the dots will connect for people based on what I know about you as well. Yeah. So I started playing soccer at the right age of five years old and I just fell completely in love with it. And um, I knew actually when I was younger, you know, when you look back and you, your, you know, your, all your, your parents, you probably keep your son's stuff, but like, you know, it says like, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And mine was always a professional soccer player. I just loved it. And so I, I knew I wanted to play and compete at a high level. And so in high school, I played and competed at some really high levels in club soccer, and then went on to play at the university of San Francisco for a year. And then I transferred down to Point Loma Nazarene university and finished my soccer career there. And I was, I was no, uh, you know, I was no Abby Wambach or, uh, or, uh, you know, Megan Rapino. I was not, I was not, nothing like that. However, um, I really, really took my, my, my job in terms of soccer very seriously. And it was actually my senior year of college when I received my fifth concussion, um, off of the, I mean, this girl took a shot on goal and I headed it out, but because I'd already had four prior, I was pretty, I was pretty um, exposed to getting another one. And I, I knew at the moment it happened and, you know, later that week I went and saw my neurologist and after looking over my scans, he's like, Lauren, I just can't guarantee that this won't be permanent next time. So I had to make that tough decision to no longer play, but thankfully I was a part of a team that still allowed me to, you know, travel with them beyond, be on the sidelines, just my role changed. Um, and because I had a little bit of extra time because I wasn't exerting myself at practice or anything like that, um, I decided to take an elective course in sports psychology and I was the only person that signed up for the course. So they had to turn it into a, like an independent study. And I just fell in love with it. And I like inadvertently was using a lot of these things in my own life, not realizing the science behind it. And the more I learned, the more I began to learn how to apply these things. And I just fell completely in love. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. So I actually, one of my, uh, one of my assignments actually was to interview somebody in the field and I interviewed Dr. Sarah Castillo at National University. And I was supposed to, we were only supposed to meet for like 30 minutes and we ended up meeting for hours. And I decided to go and, and take her program and uh, finish my master's degree a couple of years later. And right out of my master's, I got a, a couple job offers on the table. And one job offer, I ended up taking one, but the only catch was that they, were, they said, it's gonna take six months for you to be placed. And I was like, no problem. I get like another summer before I have to like jump into the adult world. So I take this job and six months later, um, I don't hear anything. And so I reach out to them and say like, Hey, I'm just checking to see when I'm going to get my job placement. And they respond and they say, um, I'm sorry, the job's no longer available. 
And so I am just heartbroken. I turned down a different job, which they've already refilled that position. So it's not like I can call them back and say, yes, I'd like to take it. And I called everybody I knew in the field. There was no job, job offers at the time. And I was kind of stuck. So I realized at some point, um, all right, well, I got to, I got to make money somehow, you know, I, I can't just be sitting on my butt right now. So I decided to get a job at Starbucks and it was actually the job that like changed my trajectory for the better. I was working in the drive-thru one day and this guy pulls up and he goes, uh, and I was your job at the drive-thru is to make conversation while their drinks being made. And so he asked me, Hey Lauren, so, uh, are you, are you in school right now? Like, are you going to school? Which was fair. Cause most people were. And I was like, no, actually I just, uh, I just got my, I just finished my degree. And he said, great. What'd you get it in? And proudly I was like, Oh, performance psychology, which is just a broad term for sports psychology. And he just starts laughing at me like full on belly laughing. And I was so confused that I, kind of called him out and I asked him, I said, what's so funny? And he goes, ha, you got one of those degrees you're never going to use. And my mouth just dropped open and I was filled with rage and frustration and almost just, I was just so offended that he would say that to me because I'm like, you don't even know me. So the, the worst part wasn't even that. The worst part was that I kept ruminating about the situation over and over again as the day went on. And every time I did, I would get more angry and more mad and more pissed. And then I got pissed because I was pissed. So I'm like, this guy doesn't even matter. Like, why are you getting so angry? Why are you letting him have so much power over you? And that's when I realized that I wasn't mad at him because he was rude. I was mad because part of what he said was right. Like here I am at a grad school performance and sports psychology. And I turned around at the first sign of discomfort. I didn't come out of grad school and just get a job right away. And so instead of finding another alternative, another route, I settled and I wasn't doing anything to try and find another job. I was just sitting at Starbucks waiting for it to come to me, but that's not how it works. And so then I asked myself, well, how the hell are you gonna be a good mental coach if you can't take your own freaking advice? And so that was the very day that I Googled how to start your own consulting company. And I started my own consulting company. And after a year of grinding it out, I, I got a, I got an off an opportunity, I should say to interview with the Yankees and I got the job and I worked there for the past four years. What did it feel like? You're sort of talking about where your head was when he delivered that message to you in the Starbucks line, but what did it feel like in your body? What, what were the emotions that you felt? Oh, I think, I think fear set in because this blind spot that I had, had been avoiding had just been revealed to me. And so there was this fear that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Mm. And part of what he said really hit home for me. And I always think that if you don't care, you're not going to respond. You don't react. You don't have the same reaction I had. And so that's when I realized like, there's something more to this. If he's getting this much of a response out of me. And it was because I was, I was afraid to look at that. I was afraid to look at my shortcomings. I was afraid to look at the fact that 
I didn't get the jobs that I wanted. You know, this vision that I had for myself didn't work out the way I had seen it. And it, it, part of it was, uh, it was, it hurt to look at it directly in the face because to me, I was a failure, but I wasn't unless I decided to stay there. And I think that's the piece that it was, it, I was putting my, putting my money where my mouth was. It was like, I, come on, let's, let's do it. Like you, you can't be telling everybody that to do this. Like if somebody came to me with that same issue, you can't give that advice and then not do it yourself. And so I think that's, I'm just so thankful for that guy because he gave me such a gift that day, even though it pissed me off, it's what I needed. It's what I wasn't willing to look in the mirror at myself. And so I, I can just say that that it hurt. <laughs> um, it hurt a lot. It was very uncomfortable, but it's exactly what I needed to get me to the next level. Mm. Upon reflection, right? It's pretty, pretty awesome reflection on your part. I had on Cal Fussman on the podcast and Cal is this energetic guy, just an amazing human. And when we were, when he was, <laughs> when I was interviewing him, but the first part felt like he was interviewing me, uh, Cal, introduced me and said, Brian Levinson, motivational speaker and this, that, and the other. And I, I just cringed as he was talking. He's like, why are you cringing? And I go, well, I don't really think of myself as someone who motivates people. Like I just, I feel like they have to figure out ways to motivate themselves. And he looked at me and he goes, but okay, that's fine. How about inspiration? I go, I could get behind that. Like, I think we all need to have inspiration in our life. And I think about what that guy did for you was he inspired you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and made you sort of look in the mirror and, and, and assess yourself and what am I doing to try to make things better? How do you think about motivation and inspiration? Because in that very moment, it, it did impact you. What someone else thought of you or how they perceived you, it impacted you and then led to you maybe going down a different path. How do you think about motivation, inspiration as it relates to performance? Well, I think, I think there's sometimes a misconception about motivation. Um, cause I think motivation can, can be so awesome. It's kind of like the cherry on top of the Sunday. It's like great if you have it, but we shouldn't rely on it if we don't. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things that can motivate us, right? There's like different types, like pain can be motivating. Um, uh, fear can be motivating, um, success can also be motivating. There's a lot of different things, but those are all things that are a little bit more external. So I think, I think for me, uh, motivation is great, but a lot of times when we wait on motivation to take action, like all we, all I know about that is that you're not going to get very far and you won't be very consistent because motivation is not very consistent. However, one of the things that I've noticed is that is I try and capitalize and take action not only when I feel motivated, but then also try to be as consistent as possible, especially when I don't. Because I think motivation is one of those things that can sometimes, like for a lot of people, we wait for it to be a prerequisite, but we shouldn't. Because a lot of times it's progress that keeps us motivated. And so that take that that means taking action first and motive motivation being a result of seeing the progress that we're making. And so I think that action should always come prior to that. Um, or we should rely more on taking action than we should feeling like taking action. But um, motivation is one of those things, kind of like confidence. It's great if you haven't have it, but we shouldn't be relying on it if we don't. Now, the part about inspiration that you talked about is I think inspiration is so important. 
in terms of, you know, knowing where you want to go and also connecting and, and watching people that are, are where you want to be. I know for myself that there's a lot of people that inspired me, you know, very early on in my career and continue to do so. And I think it's really great because you can kind of, it kind of carves out this path and it helps like you kind of create a direction for yourself. And I think it's Justin that, that actually said this, that when you're starting to Justin Sue, by the way, for those of you guys don't, don't know, recommend checking him out. Um, is that sometimes you have to adopt other people's point of view before you can create your own in any area when you're be starting out is sometimes we, we kind of adopt and try on these different points of view, these different ways of doing things. And then it kind of can turn and, and uh, be molded into something that works best for us. So I don't do think that that's part of the inspiration I really like. And I, I know some of my athletes, you know, they look at people like you know, Kobe and, um, and LeBron and some, some big, uh, some big people that have also left, you know, just an incredible legacy and, and what worked for them. Well, it's important to know that that works, what works for some may not work for you, but sometimes the best way to try to see what does work is to just take action and, and try some things on and then adjust as we move along. It's interesting that the word inspire and aspire are sound very similar because aspire is a really interesting word that probably doesn't get enough play. Like, who do I aspire to be is a really interesting thing for us to think about. How do I aspire to show up? Like, those are philosophical, foundational questions. And asp- I don't know, if, is aspiration a word? I don't know if I've ever used that. Yeah. Like, what is my aspiration? To me, is, is almost... I don't want to say more powerful, but that's the space that I play in all the time, which is who do I aspire to be as a dad, as a husband, as a coach? Um, and, and perhaps aspiration is something that we all need to sort of sink our teeth into. Yeah. I really, really like, uh, kind of that point you just made, because I think it really lends to our identity and, I actually was working with a player once and it was weird because I, I knew my, I knew my, um, athlete, I know my athletes really well. And this player, for instance, he, he just was really short with me when he would talk to me and I just thought it was odd. I'm like, Hmm, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's something that I said or did, or, you know, maybe I just uh, haven't developed a relationship as good as I thought I did. So I'm going to spend more time with him um, during this visit. And it was weird. It was like, no matter what, it was just very short answers. And so I actually, it was one day he was in the batting cages. He got there early and I got there and early too. And it was just him and I, I'm like, oh God, this is like probably his worst nightmare. And I walk up and I'm like, Hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he's like, sure. Like what you got? I was like, well, every time I talk to you, it just seems like you're really short with me. Like, have I said something to offend you? Or, you know, I was just, I was kind of curious or am I just crazy? And he kind of laughed and he's like, no, like it's not, it has nothing to do with you. And he said, I'm not a very good speaker. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I'm not very good at speaking to people. So I just try not to speak as much as possible. And I was like, interesting. So a couple of days later, he came and met me in my office and we kind of dove a little bit more into this. Come to find out in first grade, he was trying to read out loud to the class and his teacher told him he wasn't good at speaking. Mm. And ever since then, he said, I just try not to speak. And that's what we kind of pulled out of that session. And so there's a really important piece about identity here. 
is that our belief or our identity equals our belief plus our actions. His belief was that I'm not a good speaker. And his actions that supported that belief were not speaking as much as he possibly could. And that developed this identity that he carried around with him. And so we kind of reverse engineered this. And I said, okay, well, who is it that you want to be? Like, do you want to be that person? He's like, no, I don't. I'm like, well, then who do you want to be? He said, I want to be the person that isn't afraid to speak, that isn't afraid to raise their hand in a group. And I was like, great. Well, then what actions can we put in place that's going to support that new identity? And so of course it's uncomfortable, but he's like, I need to speak more. I said, great. So what we did is we actually set him up in our group sessions to speak. So I would prompt a question even before our sessions to prepare him for it. And I'd say, Hey, this is the question I'm going to, I'm going to ask, like, how, like, are, would you be comfortable if I asked you this in front of the group? How would you respond? So we prepped it beforehand. So that come that day, I would call on him and he had the confidence to speak in front of everybody. And little by little, I no longer had to prompt him. He would just raise his hand. And every time he acted into the identity he wanted to become, he's, his belief started to like follow along. And every time he did that, his actions would support this new identity and this belief that he had in himself. And now his identity is, I am a good speaker and I enjoy doing it. And so I would say that for anybody that is feeling like, you know, you're stuck or you're in a position where, you know, this identity or you, there's somebody that you want to become, it's, that's great. For the first part is knowing who it is that you want to be. And the second part and how it gets instilled into our brain is by doing the actions that support it. Little actions, they don't have to be huge, but little actions on a daily basis. And that's how we did it with that athlete. So you're, you're standing at Starbucks. You are looking at yourself as a failure and, you know, frustrated, angry, sad. And then you work your ass off to get an opportunity to work with an iconic franchise, the New York Yankees. What inside you allowed you to be confident walking through those proverbial doors, um, you know, to take a step into an organization that excellence is assigned to and, and there's, it's clear that the Yankees are always competing for a world series. And, and that's where you're, <laughs> you're sort of cutting your teeth at what allowed you to have your own confidence and your belief to do that. Um, well, first, like you said, when I was in Starbucks, my identity was failure. It was, this was a dream of mine and I fell short of it. And I was this wannabe mental performance coach that is working at Starbucks and handing out coffee. And, um, I lived in that identity for, to me, way too long. It ended up being only a couple of months, but for me, that was even too long, um, without working towards something alongside of it. And so, when I started, when I started my consulting company, not only was I now a mental performance coach, but every time I showed up, I didn't, I wasn't just showing up for myself. I was showing up for my athletes. I was showing up for other people. And so that really drove me to remind myself, like, you know what the heck you're talking about? You have something to offer these people. And if I didn't have that belief in myself, how the heck was I going to teach them? So for me, it was a daily thing. It was almost this daily message. And I forget who said this. And I, if somebody can remember, please say it, but it was the words that follow. I am follow you. And so I realized that the way I was kind of envisioning myself and I was the way I was describing myself to me 
was not who I wanted to become. And so I started to describe myself to me and I was like, you're the best mental coach in the world. You are incredible at what you do. You are going to change these people's lives for the better. You're, and I started saying these things. And as I began repeating them, I started to believe them. And I started to think, wow, you are really good at what you do. Wow, you are you deserve to be here. Wow, you are going to change some lives. You are going to add value to these people's lives. And over time, when you, when you connect who you believe you are with actions that support that, man, your identity starts to shift. And I think that the biggest thing, the way, biggest way to do that is through repetition. And so I devised these different actions that they were repeatable, but they compounded over time in terms of not only by my belief, but my ability and my identity. And so that's kind of how I kind of grew into that direction of where I, of where I guess I am, I'm now, but all the while knowing that I'm still under construction and I will always be, but knowing that with every day I have the ability to, and I think James Clear says it this way, cast a vote for the person I want to be through my actions. What are the actions that you take either daily or weekly or monthly intentionally to show up as your best? Well, there's a lot. I could keep you all day here if I went through every single one, but I'll tell you in terms of uh, my personal development in terms of sports and performance psychology, um, I read every day, twice a day. I journal every day, twice a day. Um, and I write. Those are like probably the three things is I read, I journal, and I write outside of journaling, I should say. And when I'm creative, like that's where you'll find the most of my creativity is really within those three areas. And so then I create content and that's kind of where my creativity ends up showing up is through all my social media channels and, and posting all of this new content. It's consistent with my writing, with my reading and, and talking to people like you, talking to different people that have just incredible perspectives that can challenge my own. Because I think that's how we learn and grow. Learning is not only learning new things and adopting new things, but it's also letting go of old ways of thinking and unlearning other old ways and old things. And so I think that it's a, it's a combination of all of those. And I do that through routines. I do that through holding myself accountable. I have kind of a tracker where I, I keep track and talk about watching yourself make progress. If it's not something that's immediately visual, I make something that becomes visual where I can cross off and I can see my consistency by just seeing how many days I've marked off in a row. When do you read and, and when do you journal? Is it the same time every day? Just about um, in the morning and at night. So the first thing when I wake up, well, actually I feed my cat first. So I should say she comes first because she won't stop meowing if I don't. And then I go down and I sit by the fire, make myself a cup of coffee and I read and then I journal about what I read or anything else. And at the end of the day, it's usually kind of um, a brain dump. Like I'll, I'll journal about my day and then I journal three questions. What did I do well today or what went well today? What can I do better? or improve? And then um, what did I learn? So those are kind of the three things that I journal at the end of the day after I've, after I've kind of gotten my day out on paper. Sometimes it's a one word thing. Sometimes it's a sentence, sometimes it's two full pages. It just kind of depends on the day. But again, I focus more on consistency than I do intensity because we're not always going to show up hundred percent every single day. We're just not going to have the capability. And so I focus so much more on what I can control. And that is being consistent no matter what. But you use the reading to spark the journaling, it sounds like. Yeah, mm -hmm. quite often. Sometimes I don't, um, but quite often um, I do. That's cool. I like that. 
Um, and then reading wise, what do you like to read? Uh, well, first of all, I am reading your book, which is, and I'm telling you guys, whoever's listening right now, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to him right now. I actually, I will tell you, and he will agree to this. I sent him an email the other day telling him how incredible his book is. If you have not read it, um, please, please do, um, shift your mind, right? Yeah. Shift your mind by Brian. It's incredible. So, um, I really like that, that book right now. I also, um, am reading compete every day by Jake Thompson. So those are the two right now, kind of in my arsenal. I also do audiobooks too. So I'm listening to multiple things at once, but typically I like to have something in my hands, um, to read in the morning and at night. And then when I'm getting ready, I'll listen to podcasts or listen to audiobooks. And one other thing with podcasts and audiobooks, given that we're doing a podcast right now is, I love the medium. Obviously that's why I launched this thing. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out how to absorb the data and information that comes in. And, um, I find I'm often on the road driving or working out when I'm listening. Um, and I actually went more heavy to podcast than audiobooks um, after doing audiobooks for a bunch of years. So do you have any, thoughts on how to capture the information or mine the information, either from reading, listening to audiobooks or podcasts to synthesize it and make it stay with you and, and stick with you? Um, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll screenshot, like if I'm on, if I'm listening to a podcast, I'll screenshot like a moment that I really want to remember. And then I go back if I don't have like something to write with, but usually I have a journal with me, like anywhere that I go, or I'll try and like do a quick write about it. Um, and then something I come back to later in my journaling or I'll take a note on my phone. So those are for me, like ways that I'll capture information and either go back to, or, um, or write about it, but it is not as easy as it is a book, like a normal book where you can like flip through, like I write in all of my books and I have sticky notes and everything. So those are much easier ways to capture the information, but that's kind of how I do it when I'm listening to a podcast. One of the things that I started doing was I got one of those highlighters that has a highlighter on one side and a pen on the other. And so when I go through books now, I'll highlight things. And then I'll also take some notes in between the creases. And I found that that slows me down, helps me focus, and then helps it stick for me. And I agree with you. I, I often keep a running notepad for podcasts when I'm listening, if something ca catches my attention uh, to take note of it. And especially when I was writing the book, you know, I spent four years on it formally, but I mean, it probably was another six informally just gathering information. Um, and so I would keep a database of research, of stories, of quotes. And so I just tried to pour all that in into the book. It was funny when I wrote the book, someone's like, oh, like, are you saving some stuff for the next one? I go, what, what next one? This is, I'm pouring everything into it. So I'm glad you like it. I appreciate the endorsement. It, it means a lot coming from you. Um, I want to talk about baseball. So baseball is the sport that's, it has embraced mental performance coaching more than any other team sport. So if people are unfamiliar, almost every baseball team has at least one Lauren uh, on, on their staff. Many of them have three, four, five on staff working with the majors, working with the minors, NFL, NBA, NHL, you'll see it here and there. Um, but baseball has really led the way when it comes to team sports, individual sports, Olympic sports, golf has certainly been at the forefront, tennis to a certain extent as well. Um, but what have you learned the last four years working with the Yankees, working in baseball that maybe you didn't know when you were at Starbucks? 
oh my gosh, do you have another two hours? Um, no, I, there's so much I've learned, especially from the people I've gotten to work, work with and alongside of, um, at the Yankees. Um, and then a lot of people just in baseball itself, I've learned so, so much, but I think there's a couple things that, that really stood out to me. Um, when I got there, which was, um, number one, relationships are the foundation of mental performance coaching. If you don't have a relationship with somebody, it's going to be really hard um, to coach them up in any areas that either you see improvement on or they see improvement on. Um, I remember I had this one player, uh, he'll admit to it to this day. He's actually quite proud of it. Uh, first time I met with him, we were supposed to go over kind of this like kind of intake form and he walks in and I'm like, Hey, like, I want to go over your intake form. And he goes, I'm going to be honest with you. I filled that out as a courtesy. <laughs> I just started laughing. I'm like, well, first of all, thank you. Um, second of all, do you even want to go over this? And he's like, no. So I just put it aside and we just talked And every year. It was a joke, ongoing joke. When I would meet with him, I'd be like, I just hold it up and he'd shake his head and I'd put it down. And I'm like, all right. And I think one of the things is that you can't force it on anybody. And that a lot of times, especially as a mental performance coach or parent or teacher, sometimes you don't see the, your impact of your words right away. But sometimes what you're doing is you're planting a seed that is going to you know, bloom later on, even maybe after your interactions with them. And I know that with this particular athlete, um, he wasn't super into it right away, but I never forced it. We, I just encouraged any conversation he would have, really got to know him and his family um, really well. And about a year in, he started asking questions to me about the mental game. And now he's somebody that will text me anytime he has a question. He's very curious about the topic now. And I can tell you one of the most mentally tough players I've ever worked with. So I think it's, you don't force it. Number one, number two, you don't quite know when your words are going to flourish. And so know that even though you, you may get an eye roll or you may get like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't really agree with that. That's okay. You're planning a seed and you're starting the conversation. Um, and then the third one is that, um, you know, mental toughness is one of those things that can be developed over time. I think there's some people that believe that like you either got it or you don't, but you and I both know that it's like, it's like physical skills. It can be trained and developed over time, but it has to be consistent in order to, in order to be that way. And, um, I think I really got to see that firsthand in baseball because I got to see differing levels of involvement with the mental side. And a lot of times people waited till it, they needed it before they started to study and work at it. So if there's anything I could say, it's that, you know, don't wait till you need it to train it, to use it, because it's not a light switch. You can't just turn it on when you need it much like getting fit. If, you know, if you, if you're going to run a marathon, but you don't train for it, the day you run the marathon, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to either be ugly. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck. You're not going to be very good. But if you really train and develop it, when you need it, that skill is going to be available to you. So I would say that those are probably the three things. Two thoughts I have. One, I heard a stat once that like 99% of the New York City Marathon runners finish. And my brother ran the New York City Marathon and had the first time he ran it, cramps and all this stuff pop up, but he finished. And I think to your point, one of the reasons why they do is because you don't just like sign up for the New York City Marathon. First of all, it's hard to get into Second of all, um, most people, they, they have to train. And so they put the training in and they have a competence level and that may not lead to them winning it, but they'll finish it because they put the work in. And then I'm curious for you, 
about mental toughness. How do you define mental toughness? How do you think about it? Um, since you use that phrase, and I think different people have different distinctions that they use for mental toughness. So would love to learn how you think about it. Yeah. And I didn't come up with this myself. This is something actually the Yankees, uh, this is their definition and something that I have since adopted, which is mental toughness is being your best regardless of circumstance. And your best is going to look different, right? But either way, it's showing up at your best, whatever that is at any given time, regardless of what circumstances you're facing. And so I think what mental toughness does is it's, it doesn't make you invincible. It doesn't make you invincible. It makes you adaptable. It makes you, it gives you a ch- more choices to be able to adapt to whatever circumstance or whatever thing is kind of, you know, thrown your way. I love that. I have often heard the phrase be at your best when your best is required, but I think I'm more drawn to what you just said, which is um, being at your best, I'm just taking a note of it, being at your best regardless of circumstance. Um, And to me, when I hear that, I hear um, inside out approach and how can I work from the inside to the outside? And even going back to what we were talking about with control, what you can control and the environment and let's be the best version of me, regardless of what's going on around me. And baseball is an intriguing sport. I've worked with a lot of baseball players over the years. We were talking before we started recording. I have not worked with an MLB team, um, but those that follow baseball, you know, it's a failure sport as in, you know, if you go three out of 10, you're a hall of famer is the old adage. So you're failing seven out of 10 times. And slumps have been something that I've always been interested in because if a guy goes over four and then the next game goes over four and the next game goes over four, all of a sudden he's over 12. And um, so it's interesting for a baseball player to think of how can I be at my best regardless of circumstances or outputs or um, environment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that would, that's logical to me. Um, And I think it it might even be a little more powerful than being at your best when your best is required. so I'm, I'm going to chew on that for a little bit. Awesome. Look, I think we could keep going forever and ever and ever. I agree. <laughs> and, and we will uh, continue to do this. But um, I want to just start to wind down um, and start to close with you. Um, do you want to promote anything? Is there anything you're really passionate about right now? Obviously, social media is a place where you're very active. But is there anything you're excited to promote or share or shine a light on um, as we start to close? Yeah. So a couple of things Um, I, well, first I want to promote your book because it's, I'm not kidding you. It's incredible. Same with Jake Thompson. Um, His book is compete every day. And then also this book has actually been asked. People have been asking me recently, what good books do you have for kids? And a really good one, it's actually for parents, but it also has exercises to do with your kids is Parent Pep Talks by Justin Sua. So I'd like to first start with um, promoting those three just because not only have I read them and enjoy them myself, but I think that they're really valuable to people seeking more information on this topic. And then a second is I am, it hasn't launched yet and the launch date will be coming out soon, but I will be launching a newsletter that is an extended version of my weekly videos. And so if that's something you're interested in, you can find it at all my social media outlets, um, or I should say really Twitter and Instagram. And I have kind of a link in my bio that can take you to sign up for the midweek mindset newsletter. Awesome, Lauren. You know, when you were saying earlier that your vision wasn't aligned with where you were at 
at, at Starbucks. And then you started taking action to step into the vision you had for yourself. I can't wait to see what the next iteration of you looks like. And uh, hopefully I can be a small part of your journey as well as you continue to do amazing things and inspire and uh, step into whatever you aspire to be and, and how you show up. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. That's probably where I play the most. You saw, you can also follow me on LinkedIn over there. Same thing at my name, Instagram as well. Um, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Lauren, thank you so much. You're loaded with wisdom. It's just, it's, it's, I, I got a page full of notes and um, I love how you think about the world and think about the vocabulary that you use and the intention that you have behind them. I think we are both contrarians by nature. I like how you are able to use your contrarian superpower in a way that is still warm and genuine and strong. And I'm just grateful that we've been able to connect. Well, I can't thank you enough. You know, I think the world of you. So being on this podcast is just an honor in general. So I just think, can't wait for more conversations and I've had a blast. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Because I think motivation is one of those things that can sometimes, like for a lot of people, we wait for it to be a prerequisite, but we shouldn't. Because a lot of times it's progress that keeps us motivated. And so that take that that means taking action first and motiv- motivation being a result of seeing the progress that we're making. And so I think that action should always come prior to that. Um, or we should rely more on taking action than we should feeling like taking action. But um, motivation is one of those things, kind of like confidence. It's great if you have it, have it, but we shouldn't be relying on it if we don't.